From the Partnership for Public Service, this is Profiles in Public Service, a podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. Good government needs good leaders, and leadership is one of the most important factors influencing how federal agencies work. But for government leaders to keep us safe, provide vital services, and move the country forward, they need to develop their leadership and management skills. Today, we're talking to two of our very own experts on what it means to lead in the federal government. Bob McDonald is the co-chair of the Government Leadership Advisory Council, a member of the Partnerships Board, the former CEO of Procter & Gamble, and the former Secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs. Andrew Marshall is the Partnerships Vice President of Leadership Development. He oversees the strategy, design, and delivery of the Partnerships Leadership Development Programming, including the Public Service Leadership Model. Bob and Andrew, welcome to Profiles in Public Service. Bob, I want to start with you. You answered the call to serve as Secretary of Veterans Affairs after years as the CEO of Procter & Gamble. What motivated you to make such a big change from private sector to government? Well, Lauren, I think it's important to understand that I had uh, been in government uh, by going to West Point in 1971 and had served five years in the military. Uh, So when I retired from Procter & Gamble in 2013, and I received the call from uh, the White House in 2014. The previous secretary had just resigned. There was a crisis of access for veterans to care in Phoenix. My reaction was, if not me, who? And uh, I immediately accepted. So people talk all the time about whether or not government should be run like a business, what it has in common, the, the differences between the two, but you've experienced this in depth yourself. How, if at all, does leading a company differ from leading a government agency? You're not thinking about profit and government, but there's a lot of skill sets that I would imagine are similar, but also possibly some that are quite different. What's the, the similarities and differences between the two? Yeah, I would say that the, uh, the principles of leadership are the same, but the application or execution uh, may be different. For example, in government, the the purpose, uh, you know, what we call the stewardship of public trust, the commitment to public good, um, is is tantamount. the The purpose is 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 much bigger, and the leader needs to uh, exploit that purpose in order to motivate uh, the organization. At the Procter and Gamble Company, our purpose was to improve the lives of the world's consumers. We worked very hard to make that pervasive throughout the organization. At the VA, our purpose was to, um, you know, improve the lives of the nation's veterans and their families. Uh, We worked hard to put that at the center of everything we did. So the purpose is, is, while while being the same, uh, you you highlight the purpose more, I think, uh, in the public sector because you have fewer tools uh, to motivate people with. Um, in the private sector, you have many more financial tools. Uh, the cultures tend to be different, too. And this was brought out in the Harvard Business Review case study on, on my tenure in the VA. Um, in the government sector, you, you can uh, be more rule-based. Uh, in other words, people being afraid to take initiative, uh, people following rules. Uh, the nail that stands up is the one that gets pounded down. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the private sector... Um, 
you're you're constantly urging people to take initiative because by taking initiative is how you delight your consumers, your customers. Andrew, our next question is for you. You've been at the partnership for 10 years and you currently lead our leadership development line of work. What keeps you here? There's a lot that keeps me at the partnership for public service. Uh, I have a deep belief in public service and the promise of government to tackle our country's greatest challenges. I really believe that there is no institution that can do uh, what government can do. And I also believe in leadership. I believe in its potential to transform organizations. So if government's our greatest uh, and most important institution and leadership is the single biggest driver of its effectiveness, what more fulfilling work could I find than developing public service leaders? Uh, and what's better, I get to do it with remarkable and inspiring colleagues like you, Elda, and you, Lauren, uh, and I get to learn alongside people like Bob McDonald. Uh, and we'll get to talk a little bit more about that as we as we talk, I think, about the public service leadership model. But um, the work of government's never finished. I'm never finished. It feels like a great match. And as you talk about you never finishing, um, the next question has to do with evolution. So how has your leadership development work evolved over your time at the partnership? Well, that's another thing I've loved about working at the partnership is being in this nonpartisan, nonprofit setting where we have a lot of flexibility to try things, to grow, uh, to test things quickly. And uh, where we once worked with hundreds of leaders each year, we now work with thousands, uh, where we once focused on really one cadre of, of leaders, typically GS14s and 15s. We now have offerings for leaders at all levels, from the aspiring supervisor to the executive and appointee, uh, where we once drew largely on leadership theories outside of government, which are good and we still use and lean on. Through our public service leadership model, we now provide public service leaders with cases and simulations and tools that are relevant to them. And there's, I think, more to come in that direction. Uh, and through it all, we've done more to share our point of view on what effective public service leadership looks like uh, in more avenues. And I think with more cred credibility, Bob and I, uh, along with our comrade, Doug Conant, uh, we had a chance to co-author a piece for Harvard Business Review last year on public service leadership. Uh, and uh, we're getting that message out in new ways. We're most interested, I think, in, in really working with leaders where they are. Uh, it's not, I, I say this a lot of times to our leaders, that it's not about what happens in the classroom, but what happens beyond the classroom. Uh, and it's not so much about the leadership development as it is about the developed leader. So th those are some of the ways that I think we've evolved uh, and, and uh, again, excited about what's ahead as well. Those are some really good examples, Andrew. Does any one example stand out to you where you've seen the partnership leadership work make a real impact on our government? There are countless ways that the the partnership leadership work has made an impact on government. And uh, I wish I could regale you with uh, them for the next uh, many hours, but I'll resist and stick with just a couple. One is with the Department of Labor, where we were able to partner with the political appointee team and top career executives to design um, leadership offerings really for the executive ranks all the way through managers, supervisors, and aspiring supervisors. And they were ultimately singing from the same songbook, looking at leadership in a shared way, and it really helped foster a culture of leadership. And we saw a shift in their leadership scores on their best places to work rankings. We saw the whole rankings move up uh, from really uh, near the bottom of the large agency list 
uh, up to the the 10th spot and up to the 8th spot, uh, most improved agency two years in a row. And there were a lot of good things happening at Labor through that time, but we were part of that and leadership certainly was a, a key part of that in leadership development. We also do a lot of work with teams. We have project teams on many of our programs uh, within the partnership and see a lot. Uh, in the last two years, we've seen teams that have completed projects that train investigators to use artificial intelligence to better identify fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare. Uh, we've had teams that have improved the onboarding process for political appointees at Export Import Bank. Uh, we have uh, seen teams that have uh, help promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in hiring practices. Uh, we have a team uh, that, that did this now years ago, and it's still going. Uh, actually, uh, Bob, it's out in Phoenix at the VA. It's a veggie. It's called Veggies for Veterans, uh, and um, this team piloted a voucher program for homeless veterans enrolled in HUD uh, Veterans Affairs Supportive Housing Program, and they've worked and helped thousands of veterans get fresh fruits and vegetables. On an ongoing basis, it's available every month. They partner with local organizations as well as multinational organizations like Southwest Airlines, which was uh, July last month's major program sponsor. Uh, and they've delivered hundreds and hundreds of uh, bags of produce to veterans uh, really every single month. So uh, a lot of different ways that the work we're doing goes beyond the classroom and has an impact on government and then also on the American people. Andrew, I love that story because it shows that these programs are not just teaching about the principles of leadership, but really having practical impact on the ground amongst those that they serve. I have a big question for both of you. Americans expect a lot of their government. There's all kinds of things that government does for them that only government can do, but they don't trust government very much or to the degree that they do. It's a skeptical trust that it is always looking for answers and look, having variable expectations. But leadership, I think, is probably very important at all stages in American life. But I would love to hear from both of you about why you think effective government leadership is particularly important at this moment, given everything that is going on in the world. Maybe I'll start, Andrew. I, you know, I having... Um experienced leadership in the military and then at the Procter & Gamble company in many different countries and around the world and then of course at the VA, um, I would think it's very safe to say that leadership is the scarcest resource that we have in the world and uh, leadership makes a difference. It's really that simple and as Andrew has said, uh, being a leader in the federal government allows you to paint on a very, very large canvas. And as you've indicated, uh, leadership is what is what brings trust. I mean, at the time I became secretary of the VA, uh, our trust was about 43, 45 percent. You know, only 45 percent of veterans trusted the VA. Uh, today, it's over 90 percent. And and the way we we built that uh, trust was through uh, through effective leadership. And when when you have a large government organization. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to distrust a bureaucracy. It's very hard to distrust a person you know who's leading the bureaucracy, who has a good heart, makes themselves vulnerable, is empathetic, and is working every day, visibly working every day, to connect people to services and to, and to get the job done. Um, that's why leadership is so important because it puts a face 
uh, on an otherwise monolithic impersonal bureaucracy. And that's what leaders have to do. Well, and, and Bob, if I could chime in, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but really very early in your tenure, you were on uh, at a press conference and shared your cell phone uh, really with the National Press Corps offering to help if people needed needed something. Uh, that is a, a, a moment of humanity uh, that we don't often see. And again, correct me on any of the details, but that's, I think, a lot of the kind of thing you're talking about. Well, exactly right, Andrew. I mean, as as the leader, you've got to demonstrate that you're accessible. And, and particularly in a customer service business, a medical business like the VA, you've got to make sure everyone can, can, can access you if not, if not the systems that you're, um, that you're creating. So yeah, it was my first national press conference. Uh, I gave out my cell phone number, um, the Washington Post and others were kind enough to publish it for me. And basically I was, I was doing that for, for a couple of reasons. One obviously was so veterans had um, access to me as an access perhaps of last resort, but also to demonstrate to the organization what I expected of them. I expected um, uh, them not to hide from veterans, but rather to put themselves out there and, and try to make things work. I remember my first day, the IT person came to me and said, oh, we've got all these different uh, various email addresses so people can't reach you. And, and I said, no, no, I'm going to answer my own email. I'm going to do my own social media. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to travel uh, on average uh, uh, one trip every day. Uh, to, to get out there and make sure people put a face with the bureaucracy and knew that, uh, that I was there to try to help them. Andrew, Bob talked about how leadership is one of the most scarce resources that we have, uh, whether in the private sector or in government, and you encountered so many leaders. I'm curious, what are some of the unique characteristics that you see in successful government leaders or, or growing into be successful government leaders. Maybe we can talk about that and then Elda can talk with you about the public service leadership model. Sure. I mean, I think the, the leaders I see that really understand the, the, the power of their position are those who first understand the oath they took. They took an oath to support and defend the constitution. This is a common value set for our whole country, something I would think we could all draw on. And perhaps one of the things, one of the reasons leadership's important right now is because it could be unifying. Uh, if, if, if government really took, took to heart that oath that, that each and every federal leader takes. Uh, and so I see that as something unique about leading in government and something uh, that those, those who I've admired most in their federal service, they understand it and you see it in action. Uh, and you see it through the way that they are committed to solving problems that affect us broadly, that really there's no, they, they recognize that they're in a unique position to solve challenges like a pandemic. Uh, and if they do their jobs well, then it, it actually enhances trust in, in government and it probably enhances trust in society more, more broadly. I know I'm getting uh, fairly lofty here, but that's really how I feel that there's there's power to bring us together through values and then through the work that those values uh, uh, foster. And it's there's nowhere else that can happen uh, outside of government. There's a lot of other things like the short-term agenda versus the long-term mission or the appointment process or budget process, a lot of other things that set the federal government apart. 
but this stewardship of public trust and the commitment to public good, those are our, our unique anchors to public service leadership. Just a quick aside on that before I turn it over to you, Elda. I think you know, having served in government myself, uh, as many of us have that are listening and are participating here, that's just one of those incredible moments when you get asked on your first day to stand up with a group of folks to recite the oath. And whenever I got the chance to be a part of somebody's ceremony or to welcome in a new colleague there, it sends chills up your spine to say, we all came in here and we're all saying the same words. And this, as you say, Andrew, it means something. Um, You mentioned several government processes around strategy and budget and so on that we're all working on. Those are all values driven. They're there because of the values and norms that drove that oath. And we figured out how to operationalize it in some way. So I I love that point. And I agree, Lauren. I I believe the government is one of the few entities where you do take an oath before you go in and just state your commitment with your colleagues and your peers. Andrew, can you walk us through the public service leadership model and tell the audience how it was developed? Absolutely. Uh, And I I need to bring a character into the cast here, Doug Conant. uh, He's the co-chair of our Government Leadership Advisory Council. He's also on our board. He's the former CEO of Campbell Soup. And he understands both leadership in theory and practice, arguably better than than anyone else I, I know. And it was really a partnership with Doug, uh, with Bob, and uh, and I, again, had the opportunity and privilege of partnering with them to come up with this concept uh, of needing a, a, a model that was current, relevant for government leaders and the challenges they're facing today, and could guide not just the partnerships, leadership development programming, but guide government. Uh, so we first formed the Government Leadership Advisory Council. Uh, And this is a group of very distinguished champions of leadership across all sectors of American life. We have people from academia, uh, like Amy Edmondson, uh, from the corporate world, uh, like like Doug, uh, like Stephen M. R. Covey or uh, Liz Wiseman, uh, from the nonprofit sector, like Mario Marino, and civilian and military, uh, like Charlie Bolden and Les Lyles and Bernie Banks, Sally Jewell. It's a really phenomenal, uh, phenomenal cadre. Uh, of champions, uh, Thad Allen as well. We worked with this with this council doing interviews. I literally have hundreds of pages of notes from their experience studying leadership, leading at the highest levels in government and industry. Uh, and uh, and we combed through those. We did focus groups and interviews and surveys with our thousands of alumni from our programming, uh, and we ultimately designed the public service leadership model. Uh, and it has four competencies becoming self-aware, engaging others, leading change and achieving results. And they're all bound up in these core values. And it was Bob actually who really impressed that term, the core values of government leadership, which are the stewardship of public trust and the commitment to public good. And that's what stood out. That's what anchors the public servant, as I've talked about. And, and since then, so we launched the model. And again, it's, it's been an, 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 a really amazing guide for our own uh, curriculum uh, and in the way we're developing leaders uh, but we've also seen uh, agency leaders take it and run with it uh, and apply it. We've we've developed a tool, a 360 assessment tool, uh, that is a way to measure people against these values and competencies. And they take their own assessment and then they have raters uh, among their boss, their peers, their direct reports, their family and friends and colleagues can all take the same question set so they can see how am I doing? Uh, and how am I doing uh, as, as it relates to how other people think I'm doing? 
So this is a valid and reliable assessment. Uh, and we've now used it with well over a thousand liters. And really, we're just getting started. So there's a little bit of the, the origin story. I would, I would also add that um, I have never seen a high performance organization uh, in my experience, either in the private, public or military sector that doesn't have a single unifying leadership model. If leadership is the scarcest resource, you need to have a culture of leadership. And that culture of leadership must be driven by a, a singular model, which is pervasive across the enterprise and provides the language, the culture, the behavioral norms that that organization needs. When I got to the VA, I had over 75 different leadership models within our organization. And I, and I knew we were not going to be able to develop a culture or a cadre of leaders with that many different and disparate models, one from each different consultant. So we created our own model, but the, the idea here is to unify the federal government behind a single public service leadership model that will allow the federal government to rise to the level of a high performance organization by having a pervasive model that provides that culture and vocabulary and, and those, those uh, models, those modes that, of, which, uh, of which the government should operate by. As you both talk about just the number of leaders who have been able to use the model, Andrew mentioned over a thousand. We looked at different areas in terms of becoming self-aware and engaging others and leading change. What do you believe is next as it relates to the, the public service leadership model? Yeah, I'm happy to, to share and, and would love to hear Bob's perspective. And it was a thousand leaders with our public, with our public service leadership 360. Uh, many more have worked with the model through our, our programming and with us within agencies. So what comes next? Uh, well, next year we'll be launching the Public Service Leadership Institute. Uh, and the premise of that is to develop public service leaders who can build a better government and a stronger democracy. Uh, our ultimate outcome is to increase effectiveness and accountability for career and political and congressional leaders. Uh, there's, there's, it's, we're, we're hoping to go beyond the programming uh, and, uh, and in addition to the programs that will continue to run to develop leaders, also have a perspective out there and share that more freely, convene uh, experts and other champions on public service leadership and put out policy and legislative recommendations in order to move us toward, as Bob talked about, a singular uh, standard, a single standard for uh, effective uh, public service leadership. And we hope that this can, can make waves to strengthen the, the leaders across government and then ultimately the trust that the public has in government. Much more I could share, but there's a, there's a little bit of a preview of, of what's ahead. And it's all going to be based in the public service leadership model. Yeah, I think as Andrew says, it's all about, as I said earlier, all about making this model more pervasive. Um, uh, we're working with members of Congress to codify the model as uh, as the way to to teach leadership and develop leadership in government, uh, similar to uh, best places to work, because uh, we know that if we measure it, uh, that we'll, chances are we'll we'll get some effective uh, improvement. And then I think, you know, we've got to make it pervasive from government recruiting to government development to rating systems to uh, how people are promoted. Um, and to the degree that we make it pervasive, uh, government becomes a, a stronger, higher performance organization. So, Bob, on top of 
leadership being a scarce resource, both in the government and the private sector, I think leadership champions are also not nearly numerous enough. And I'm curious about now, how did you become a leadership champion? Was there perhaps a moment earlier in your career that taught you the importance of good leadership or another story you might share? Well, I've been a champion of leadership throughout my various careers, whether it's uh, in the Army or at the Procter & Gamble Company or uh, later as uh, the Secretary of the VA. I've seen the difference leadership can make. Leadership is a gift. It's, 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 it's uh, the ability to affect a positive difference in someone's life. That's a blessing. But with that blessing comes tremendous responsibility. Uh, wouldn't it be awful to not take advantage of that, not to make a positive difference in someone's life? Um, I can remember when I was first uh, became acquainted with the Partnership for Public Service, I was Secretary of the VA, I was giving a SAMI award to two doctors at the VA who had developed something called the exoskeleton. The exoskeleton uh, is something we use to get paralyzed veterans up out of their wheelchairs and, and walking. The idea here was by getting them walking, they would exercise their muscles, their bones would strengthen, and their gastrointestinal system worked. And so physically it added years to their lives. Uh, we had a, a Marine veteran on stage with us that night and, and I remember talking to him and he said, while he understood that using the exoskeleton would add years to his life from this better physiology, the more important thing to him is standing in the exoskeleton, he could look someone in the eye. And that's a psychological difference. It's a spiritual difference that, that really uh, I had not fully understood. But that's the kind of difference that leadership can make. And those two doctors who developed that exoskeleton were the kind of leaders that, that I aspire to be. Oh, wow. That, that's a really impactful story, Bob, um, in terms of just looking at leaders and looking at how in any field you can impact the, the people around you as a leader. Um, this next question is for Andrew. Andrew, you've developed leaders for years as an executive coach and facilitator. Can you share an experience when you saw a real change as a result? Thanks, Elda. I, I mean, I think about even the work that, that we've done together, Elda, with the senior executive uh, AI program, where we're helping equip executives with skills uh, in the area of artificial intelligence and how to lead effectively with technology. And if they are applying those principles, that's going to have a, an impact on hundreds of thousands of people that they lead in their workforces. So there's some big scale uh, areas that I've seen impact. Uh, I facilitated a retreat with Secretary Wilkie, uh, uh, one of Bob's successors in their last year uh, at the VA of that administration. And they had career and political leaders together. Uh, and that helped shore up what they wanted to accomplish, not just in that last year, but through the transition and beyond. And that certainly is change that uh, makes a difference. But as I think about it, I think it's, it's the, the work where I'm up close with a leader for a long period of time, which typically happens in coaching, that makes the biggest difference. Uh, last year in April, I was coaching a, a senior executive at uh, Health and Human Services who is in an extremely demanding role. Uh, helping in the cross-agency collaboration, uh, combating the pandemic, getting resources directly to hospitals, really in the, in, in the early stages and throughout, honestly, the pandemic. And in working with him throughout that time 
on how he would lead through that, whether that was in collaborating with other agencies, whether that was in engaging his beleaguered and fatigued workforce, or whether that was working with him himself and ensuring that he had the wherewithal and the energy and the space to continue on was extremely rewarding over that course of time. Uh, I recently was coaching another leader who was just playing too small. She she suffered from, as she put it, self you know, imposter syndrome. It was self-diagnosed. Uh, when she was really doing amazing work, and she, when she took R360, she, she actually said that she realized that she, in a way, wasn't who, who she thought she was, uh, that it increased her self-awareness, and she could suddenly see herself the way others saw her, as, an, as a strong, action-oriented, innovative leader who gets results. And uh, for me, that's, that's, that's what I want every time I'm working with a leader, whether it's a lot of leaders or one at a time, that they see another version of themselves. And that they are surprised by that next version, that they're surprised by the possibility of who they are and what they can do. And uh, again, that's, that's enough for me to get up in the morning every day. So Bob, I want to build on an aside that Andrew just mentioned around career and political leaders in government. We've been talking about leaders in government. They come in all shapes, sizes, and definitions and authorities. But there are two different models of leadership in government that are different in some ways. Career leaders who are brought in through the civil service or hired as the senior executive service and political appointees who are selected by the president and either appointed in their roles or confirmed by the Senate. And there's a lot of differences in terms of how they approach the roles sometimes. And I'm curious from your perspective, what difference would it make to hold all career and political leaders to a single standard? And what was your experience at the VA like in that regard? That's a great question. I I think in many ways you answered the question with with the question because uh, the problem is there shouldn't be space between political appointees and career career employees of the federal government. They should all use the same identical leadership model and they all should be out there uh, being stewards of the public trust and being committed to the public good. And they should be using the same vocabulary, asking each other, you know, what, what change are you leading in your organization? How are you engaging others? Um, that's why we need the common vocabulary. It's too often that I've seen political leaders come in and really not provide leadership uh, or think that leadership is making political pronouncements rather than developing the organization. Um, I was fortunate. The deputy secretary of the VA when I was a secretary was my West Point classmate, and there was absolutely no uh, room between his beliefs in leadership and mine and what we need to get done. We need that across the federal government. Bob, just a quick aside before I turn it over to Elda with the last question. My former boss was Secretary Bob Gates at the Department of Defense and I remember reading his memoir, Duty, um, about, and it was talking about various decisions where the military, the career leaders, the political leaders of the White House, and the political leaders of the Department of Defense were all aiming at the same goals, and they were speaking such different language. And every time I tell the stories about it, I talk about they're, they're like star-crossed lovers. They, they just were never going to align until they came together on their, their common intent. So I, I completely agree with you. Well, I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I probably my best, maybe one of my best preparations for working in the federal government 
was the fact that I had lived and worked and led organizations in foreign countries, in Canada, in the Philippines, in Japan, uh, in Brussels, Belgium. I lived in all those places. But then, of course, leading a global organization, trying to understand the culture, the language, um, you know, of the federal government, which uh, arguably is its own entity. Um, it shouldn't have to be that way, though. We should be able to have unity of leadership uh, across the federal government, and I think would result in a better outcome. As you talk about unity amongst leadership, amongst the federal government, this last question is for the both of you. What do you believe people who are interested in developing their individual management and leadership abilities do? And what's the first step that they should take in doing this? I'm happy to, to chime in and, and give uh, Bob the, the last word here. I think you can see someone's values by where they put their resources, resources being time and energy and money and uh, whatever else it might be. And leaders should think about what kinds of resources they're placing toward that value of one of the most important roles they have in their lives, which is leadership. Uh, are they regularly taking time to think about their values, vision, and mission and how they align to the work that they're doing? Could they articulate their leadership style that's unique to them and what those who they lead ought to expect from them? Uh, what kind of effort are they putting into their own development, even formal programs, which, of course, we, we provide day in and day out at the partnership? Uh, and, and one of the best things I think about programs is that they create natural spaces for self-reflection, for continuous learning, uh, and for relationship building. And these are often foundational for leading as a whole, is that space and time. We are in such a fast-paced world, uh, and I think it's incumbent on leaders, for those who are interested in continuing to develop their abilities, the first step is some time uh, and energy to think about intentionally how you want to lead, and then, of course, execute it, practice it, learn from your mistakes, and do it again. Yeah, I would say the same thing Andrew's saying. I would just say it a different way, which is what are you doing to sharpen your saw? Uh, borrowing from Stephen Covey's uh, great book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, two people chopping wood, uh, one person sits down occasionally, but their stack gets higher than the other. And one question, the person discloses that they were sharpening their saw. So what book are you reading on leadership now? What are you looking at? Last week, I had the... Uh, the joy of interviewing uh, Jim Mattis at the George W. Bush uh, Institute. And, uh, you know, Jim's got a, Gerald Mattis has a, a library of over 7,000 books. Uh, I'm reading a book right now on, on Abraham Lincoln and how he became a great leader. Uh, you got to be constantly sharpening your saw. And the good news is anything you learn about leadership will also translate into better parenting. So for those who are parents, it's a good reason to get involved. Well, my, yeah, my kids don't know that I practice everything on them before I take it into uh, any, any set of leaders, but uh, it, 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 it does help in all, in all aspects of life. Uh, and I, I, I recently came back, the partnership generously at the end of 10 years provides a sabbatical uh, and was able to step away for a month with the family, but also take some, a good amount of time to reflect and read. Uh, and again, just a big reminder to me that we're never finished. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think a message for leaders everywhere. Well, and also you don't know how many people you're impacting, 
right? If you remember the the wonderful story of uh, Don Quixote, and um, which Miguel de Cervantes wrote, and at the end of the the musical version, Man of La Mancha, as Don Quixote dies, uh, Sancho turns to uh, Eldanza, who was a, a prostitute and a barmaid, and calls her by her original name, Eldanza, and she responds, no, my name is Dulcinea, which is the name of a princess that that Don Quixote had given her. And Don Quixote, by being kind to her, had changed her for the rest of her life. Uh, If we can expect great things of people, they will rise to that occasion. And that's the blessing of leadership. We have to take advantage of it. It's a huge responsibility, a huge obligation. And I, I know Lauren and Elda, we're going back and forth here. I can't resist though that this is this is exactly. I mean, we're clearly on a. We're gonna. We could stay on this a long time. I think. And Bob and I have stayed on this topic a long time before. But this is also the work of public service leadership. This and this point that he's making of you don't know who you're impacting uh, uh, in public service leadership. It started before you, and it's going to go way beyond you. And Sally Jewell, who's on our council and helped us build this, she said when I entered government as the Secretary of Interior, I had this realization that I was in the forever business and that the work I was doing was going to impact generations. And so uh, uh, I think this, you know, take, take, the, take public service leadership seriously, and it's going to make a difference that's going to far outlast you. Well, Bob and Andrew, you have definitely changed me in this uh, hour-long podcast that we've recorded. I am going to be updating my calendar and adding to my Amazon book list, if anything, um, and then thinking through that long trail of individuals that you touch with leadership whose impact the imp- whose impact on you may not ever know. Thank you both so much for this. This was really incredible. Um, I'm so grateful for your time and for all the tremendous insight that you shared with us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. Ella, I as always love talking to Bob and Andrew about leadership and government. I always learn something from them. But the thing that always hits me the most anytime I hear from Bob is how personally he takes his role as a leader and his role as a leader in the federal government. The story that I think it was Andrew told about how he personally gave out his cell phone number to the press corps and really at that point to the American people to be able to say, you've got a problem, then call me. Like This is not something that he wants to delegate. He wants to both set the example for and have it spread. And it, it impresses me every time. And I, I'm so hopeful that people hear that example and think about their own ways to follow it. I agree. And within him being transparent, Lauren, he was able to move the ratings in terms of trust within the VA from about 43% to now at 90%, which showed that there was a level of humanity, a level of vulnerability for Bob to lead this organization and for the veterans to see him as a viable resource and basically leading from the top in terms of showing all the the leaders across the VA, this is how we should move forward with serving our veterans and allowing them to see if I can provide my information, you can as well to serve our public better. He and Andrew both made the point about how leaders are the face of government. And I think it's important to note that that's both internal and external. It's easy to externally talk about the faceless bureaucracy, and it's easily internally to not take your job as seriously or not put a human face on it or not understand the connection, particularly in government, to purpose and the public good. 
but he makes the point or both of them make the point, but Bob in particular about how it's hard to distrust someone that, you know, is leading, who has a good heart and makes themselves vulnerable and empathetic. And, you know, he, I, I know he both believes that, but also you can see in the example that you just gave and he, the many ones he gives that that works. Like it's not just a nice talking point or something that to read in a leadership book, it actually works. It makes a difference and it changes how both workers inside the federal government and stakeholders outside see the impact of government and look at its potential. And Lauren, they both had the opportunity to share their experiences and how we've come about the public service leadership model within the partnership and being able to think about becoming self-aware, leading change, achieving results and engaging your community and finding this all together so that there is a core value of government across the government and working with entities such as Congress to be able to develop this so that government at some point can be a high performing organization and really thinking through and intrinsically how they want to be as leaders and how our leaders should look at the way that they want to develop themselves. I think there was such an important point that they made about the difference between leaders in government and what we should expect of them versus leaders in other places. The sort of the ingredients are the same, but the purpose is much bigger, as, as Bob said. And to wrap up, I would just love to actually ask you a question. You work with leaders in our federal government from folks like Bob all the way down to early, er, much earlier career leaders across the federal agencies. What is it that you learn from them when you are working with them on a regular basis about what makes a government leader different? I think the first step, and we, and we talked about this and learned about it for those who didn't know, is, is the oath and being able to really commit themselves as leaders and then being intentional with their time, whether they're involved with a partnership program. I know I particularly work with the senior executive service or another entity. Our leaders are taking time and energy to think about how they want to lead their organizations and then the resources that they're going to identify and locate to make them stronger leaders. And it aligns with what Andrew said in terms of thinking through what they want their values and vision and the mission to be and aligning all of that in terms of leading at the top and leading from the front and leading their organizations. So I definitely believe that the passion is there within our leaders. And it's always amazing to see in whatever capacity and whatever programs we're leading, them really taking the time and carving out the time to be the best leader that they can be within their organizations. Elda, thank you so much for coming in as a guest host this week. You're the perfect person to help us explore these issues with Bob and Andrew, and we'll be excited to have you back sometime soon. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Be the first to hear new episodes of Profiles in Public Service by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our researcher and writer is Emma Jones. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.